But it's, it's a catechism, it's a teaching tool. It was intended to teach children, if you can imagine, and question and answer. And then each um, question and answer on a daily basis. And then each section had a whole list of scripture that, was, um, that backed up the answer. And so it's, it's actually a pretty good devotional tool if you'd like to use it. Um, and all you got to do is type in in, your, in the, the Google machine, just type in Heidelberg Catechism, and you'll have a chance to find it, right? Um, and you could do that. It is, um, the very first question asks this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then it says this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The catechism is concerned with the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Um, the word only is really significant in the catechism. Um, it signifies kind of an exclusivity or an exclusively. Uh, supremely might be another word. Um, and as I've said before, there's no additions to it. It's God, Jesus, in all things. The supremacy of Jesus in all things. It's a continued response to the corrupt Roman papacy. The selling of salvation in all kinds of ways. Um, and that was Luther's big, um, one of his big complaints, right? Luther never really intended to break with the Catholic Church, but really truly wanted to reform it. Um, the other thing that shows up, ironically, in the Heidelberg Catechism is, uh, maybe not ironically, but it's, a, again, a statement about what's distinctive about the, uh, the sacraments. And in particular, the Lord's Supper shows up in a way that's interesting in trying to break with the Catholic Church that believes that the, the bread and the, the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus. So in the Catholic Church, you know, the, the pastors will um, keep the bread of the presence and they'll keep that and uh, keep that separate. Um, they will drink all the juice, all the wine from the service so that it doesn't spill because it's actually this idea that it's become something when it's been consecrated. Um, Lutherans use, um, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Ron, but, but rather than, uh, they don't use the word consubstantiation. This, this is sort of a misnomer. Maybe you've heard it. And I don't even know what that word means. But they use words like in, with, under, around, that, that Christ is really present, which isn't far from what uh, most Protestant people believe. For Presbyterians, we look at, and look at it and we would emphasize the language, do this in remembrance of me. We'd think of it as more memorial than presence. 
and that we're to remember the mighty acts of God. And by remembering, we bring them into the present. And it's sort of an Old Testament feel. Um, again, it's a catechism. It retells the story of the mighty acts of God. And it retells it, and you relearn it, and go from there. It's a teaching tool. And uh, so it, it makes some sense that we would pay attention today. Um, our scripture reading this morning comes from, from Romans, the 28th verse. Um, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. You can see that in the catechism, in this little um, section that just says, um, in fact, all things must work together for my salvation is part of the answer, because I belong to him. And um, I let me put it in a little bit bigger context. I'll read, hold, keep that up there. Let me read the rest of it that's around it. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God who searches the heart knows what is, in the, what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say, Paul says, about these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? Pray with me. God, may the words that we address this morning, that we hear, that we read, may they fall from our heads and our lips to our hearts, and thus to our hands, that we might be your people in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your only comfort in life and in death? I have shared this with you before, but in a different context, and I share it with you again. I, I, um, one of the questions that we ask when we start new churches, I, I worked in, in church planting, the church planting world for 25 plus years, and I continue to coach people that are doing that. I continue to work with groups that are trying to start new work. And um, while I do that, I, we ask the question up front, right when people are getting started, when they're forming a group, we want them to have a conversation about who is Jesus to you. Um, and we want you to state that without using any biblical or religious jargon. So you can't say he's the Savior to you. We want them to come up and translate that 
as though somebody outside the church is listening to them and paying attention so that they have to translate these, these huge words and these great big concepts we've all grown up with or we've learned as members of the faith over time. And we throw them around and oftentimes we don't know what they mean. But we do that all the time. And so we ask the question, I asked it of the session when I first met with them. I will ask it again when we come back together with a new group in um, January. And to, to share, who is Jesus to you? And one of my favorite answers is by a, a pastor, an African-American guy in, in uh, back east, uh, Warren. Um, I got to know just one of the most delightful people um, that I've had a chance to, to catch up with. And Warren said, I know exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is um, that queen-size bed that I fall into at the end of a long journey, a trip, or, or work that's been really difficult, and I fall into it and it catches me. If I were to ask Warren at that moment, what is your only comfort in life and death? He'd say, Jesus, who is like this great big bed that I just, I can just fall backwards into. And he catches me. And he holds me. And it's just soft enough and firm enough that the whole weight of my existence is held by Jesus. It's a beautiful expression of faith. It's an incredible image of letting go and letting God hold you up. I just love that comfort. For him, it's, I think of going to bed as a comfortable thing and going to sleep. And Warren just letting go. Frederick Beekner was a um, student. He's a, a well-known author who just died recently in the last uh, month or so. I have lots of his books. And he tells a, a, a story. He's in, he, he wrote a little book called um, uh, Coming Home. And in that book, he shares this story of being a seminary student and going to um, one of our Presbyterian churches in New York City, Fifth Avenue. Big church. It was Christmas. It was near Christmas Eve. It was one of the late night services that um, they were doing. I think the pastor at the time was George Buttrick, who was one of the giants of preaching uh, in our denomination at the time back in the day, mid-20th mid, uh, century. And he said that the Buttrick was in the pulpit and the candlelight was all around and he had his glasses on and he pulled them down. And he said he looked at the congregation and said, are you going home for Christmas? And Beekner writes, he goes, I knew exactly what he meant. Yes, I, I was going to go home. But he said, I heard it in a deeper way. 
The question was, was I going home to Jesus? Was I going to come home to this one and be present with Jesus? Longing for home has been a theme in my life for a long time. I think it it has something to do with childhood and the chaotic household I came out of. Um, alcoholic parent and, and, uh, and all the different roles that everybody played in that, and, and I had my own. Um, but we were, I was the youngest, and, and it was just chaotic. Um, so for me, the longing of home, and for many, um, has to do with with different aspects of that experience. And for me, this is what it means. First of all, it means a place. A place of intense familiarity, of incredible, um, without, without just being too cheeky about this, just an at-homeness. Do you know what that, I mean, if I say that, do you have an image for yourself of what that's like? to feel at home in your environment. I know where I am and I belong there. It's just a remarkable place. And there are places in the world, I remember I was in Scotland for a, uh, um, a one of the many times we've been there, and, and a friend of mine, Willie John MacDonald, Willie John was... Uh, worked for the Church of Scotland um, and uh, just a fierce defender of the gospel and a fierce missionary type. And, and he comes up to me, and I, I know I'll butcher the accent. I'm so sorry, Margaret. But um, <laughs> I apologize ahead of time. And he pulled me aside and said, Craig, you found your home, haven't you? And it's like, yeah, I, I felt at home. I felt like I had met my people. I met people like me. It didn't hurt that many of the street names and buildings were all named Craig of some fashion or another. It was really nice. Um, we don't find any of those here in the States. So, um, so for me, a longing for home, for comfort, means finding my place in this world. It also means acceptance. For me, longing for home is this idea of being accepted. That, and what that means is not that you just let me in. It's that you get me. That acceptance is you take what I am and you determine that it's okay. I don't have to be different. There's an author who talks about this and she says that pastors and others I think all of us at one time or another we put on a presentable respectable public self she calls it a glittering image and Susan Howitch does this in her first book of a, a group of six but this glittering image that I project is what I want you to believe I am because I'm afraid that you won't accept me as I am So for me to be at home is you get me. 
And then like Warren, I think to be at home, my longing for home is that I would be able to rest, that I don't have to hold anything up, that I don't have to hold myself up, that I don't have to hold up my family, I don't have to make things work for them, I don't have to make things work for my work, I don't have to make this thing work at all. The sermon doesn't have to work. I think for me, my longing for home, my comfort, is that I could rest and live an unworried existence for just a little bit. And those things together are what I long for. Deep down, they happen in glimpses. They happen in short little moments. And they're not sustained. But I do see what it's like from time to time. My spiritual director would call that consolation, consoling, that there are this, these different things. There's consolation and desolation. Desolation says there's no hope, there's no future. You, just, you look at the end of the tunnel and there's no light. Consolation would see there's a glimmer of hope. There's a little bit of light. There's a little bit of love. There's a little bit of understanding. There's a little bit of comfort. There's something that holds you up a little bit. It doesn't have to be big things. It can be little things. It's just an inbreaking of God into our everyday existence, bringing comfort through the Holy Spirit, bringing hopefulness. I experience it sometimes when I go stand um, my favorite spot to stand when I was a teenager, I would go down and stand above the cliffs in Newport Beach and look at the ocean. And there was something about the bigness and the power and the ruggedness of it when a storm was coming on that just made me feel small and made me realize that I also was not alone. It's a strange combination, but that experience provided just enough hope. Everyday experiences that remind us that our only hope, our only comfort in life and in death is the person of Jesus. But where do we see him? It's not just reading, and it's not merely um, just when we're being holy, praying, or going to church, or doing good stuff. Philippians, Paul writes this. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things that you have learned and received and heard and noticed in me, says Paul, do them. And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace who will give you 
an unworried existence today and all days. It's little things, my friends. It's not always the big things. It's as simple as bread and wine. There's no mistake that Jesus took really ordinary stuff and made it a profound action. This table begs a question. It begs the question and says, will you come home today? Will you come home to Jesus? I think about it a lot. And I've been a Christian a long time. But I'm not always at home with Jesus. Because he's not always my everything. But today, you're invited to come. Barbara, you want to come on up? She's in the back. <laughs>